everyone. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast. Back in March 2021, Cristobal Cobo, Senior Education Technology Specialist at the World Bank, spoke with Amy Clement, Managing Partner of Imaginable Futures, and Sergio Venegas Marin, Young Professional at the World Bank Education Global Practice. They spoke about monitoring countries' readiness to support education with digital technologies, and with that, the EdTech Readiness Index, or ETRI. You can listen to this episode via the link in our episode notes. Today, we're continuing the conversation. Cristobal Cobo speaks with World Bank ETRI team members Marie-Hélène Coutier, Emma Lambert-Porter, and Marjorie Chinen about implementing the ETRI tool in the Dominican Republic, Nepal, Ho Chi Minh City, Sierra Leone, and Niger. You can learn more about ETRI via the link in our episode notes. Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast, a conversation on the use of technology and innovation in education globally. My name is Cristobal Cobo. I'm Senior Education Technology Specialist at the World Bank. I'm delighted to welcome you to this new episode about EDTRI, Education and Technology Readiness Index. This is a collaboration between the World Bank and Imaginable Futures. Exactly two years ago, we shared a podcast when we were planning about launching this instrument. And you might remember what two years ago, right? I mean, all what happened in between. Now, two years later, with the pandemic fading away in the horizon, we have a lot to share and discuss. Today in the studio, we have Marie-Hélène Cloutier, Senior Economist, Marjorie Chinen, core member of the tech team, and Emma Lambert-Porter, consultant. All of them part of the World Bank team. So thank you to all of you for joining us today. And let's discuss a little bit about this Educational Technology Readiness Index. Marie-Hélène, why don't you tell us what is this instrument and why the, the relevance of it? So first of all, a lot of countries are facing a learning crisis. More than 70% of children across the low and middle income countries are unable to read and understand a short paragraph around age 10. So that's the context, right? So a lot of countries are trying to figure out what to do about it. And edtech has become even more important in the what to do about this, especially given the pandemic. Right, so this tool is a short, cost-effective diagnostic tool. It builds from two different surveys. It collects data from schools. It also collects data from different stakeholders to understand what the policies are uh, in the edtech space. And it's meant to identify what's working well and what could be improved in order for edtech to be a promoter of more learning. This is great. Can you? Dig a little bit on, on this idea of the readiness. When a country is ready to say technology is welcome, how do you collect information to, to get that kind of perception that the this education system is ready to make the best of technology for learning? We have developed a framework that identifies key elements that a country would want to see in place in order for edtech to be useful. So we have six pillars in our framework. Three of them are focusing on the human resources that you need to use EdTech effectively. And then the other three are more focused on, on what we're normally expecting to see when we talk about EdTech that are more like input related. So on the input front, we look at the devices that are available in the school, the digital education resources that are available for the school to use, as well as the connectivity. On the human front, we look at how the management is focusing, prioritizing, and using EdTech, training their teachers into using EdTech, how teachers are actually thinking uh, about using EdTech, and how they use it with their students. 
and how they understand their student are using it um, uh, inside the classroom, but as well outside of the classroom. If we look at the evidence, of the impact of tech in learning, we see at least a patchy picture, right? With mismatch in some cases, with not conclusive results. Why are you studying this? Why do you think that tech could be critical in this analysis? That's a very good point. Definitely, it's a patchy picture. It has mixed results. But in some cases, it does have positive results. You can think even if the results are, are mixed in terms of the direct link between tech and learning definitely see edtech as bringing some additional ways of doing better in teaching, so more agility from the teaching perspective, new inputs that could definitely be useful and worth looking into. And then in the context of the pandemic, you would think that any education system needs to be ready to respond to other crises. So having that in place to, to be available if school closed again, or there is a need for hybrid uh, approaches to learning, um, having that in place uh, definitely useful. It can be a tool for providing access to students who are close or those who might be remote, but also other ways of interaction between students, but also between students and teachers, or using as a platform for sharing, or using as a tool for management of monitoring. So there are all these different components that I think it could be highly benefited from this kind of analysis. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Maria Lynn. Exactly. Okay, so this is great because we, with that, we understand the big picture of this EdTech Readiness Index. Can we now, two years after the third podcast, understand how this information is being collected during this time and where we have evidence from and what can, what can we share about that? Maybe Marjorie can give us an idea of the how. And... Yes, so EdTech is collected using two surveys. One is the school survey and the other one is the policy survey. So the school survey is primary data collections and aim to capture practice at the school, what teachers and principals are doing in terms of implementation of a technology, but also the facto policies, how the policies are implemented, interpreted at the school level. This survey is designed for basic education, and we actually have been implemented in both primary and secondary levels. The survey can be implemented both in person or uh, remotely using phone survey. And we actually have, in different countries, we have implemented it in different ways. Both the school principals and the teachers can be reporting. When we collect remotely, we mainly talk to the principal because it's easier when we collect information remotely. But we also have some cases where we have interviewed both principals and teachers. In-person survey is always both because that allows us to go deeper and understand better what's happening in the schools. In terms of the sample, we collect the data from approximately 200, 300 schools. And to come up with the sample, we use the information management systems of the countries. And we provide some stratification, meaning we divide the data in terms of a couple of strata just to uh, increase the learning and how the information might change from different settings. For instance, we collect information from urban and rural and public and private schools. We have implemented multiple languages, and my colleague Emma will talk a little more about that. And the survey includes approximately 50 questions. In terms of the policy survey, this is no primary data collection. We use mainly an expert local consultant to collect this information. 
And this policy survey aims to capture the, the, the Euro policies related to the six pillars that Marilene mentioned before. We collect information through a policy review and if necessary and needed to complement the information, we also collect information through key stakeholder interviews. This is a much shorter survey and with approximately 30 questions. And we also ask the consultant to provide a small report to provide a little more background of how this policy has been implemented and to understand a little bit better the context. That's great. Wow. It's a very comprehensive and I love the idea that you have the chance to connect these two worlds, so the world of the policy and the world of the implementation that not always are 100% aligned. So you were talking about all this data collection from different countries. Maybe Emma, can you share a little bit of where the data has been collected and how it's been in the field process of collecting the information? Thanks, Chris. So to date, I think we have the tool currently in five languages, including English, Spanish, Vietnamese, Nepali and Arabic. To date, we've implemented it in five countries. Some of these have been remote data collections, while others were done in person in conjunction with the global education policy dashboard. To date, we've implemented it in Dominican Republic, Nepal, Ho Chi Minh City, Sierra Leone, and Niger. Has it been similar in every country? Can you explain why some, in some cases have been only the principals in the other principals and teachers or any, any adaptation from one country to another one? Sure. So actually, it's been quite different in every country. Some included both a principal and a teacher or would include separate calls to a principal and a teacher or the teacher. So it's been different in every country. Some cases have included an interview with the principal after they'd corresponded with the teacher. Others will include separate conversations with the principal or, or the relevant grade five or grade four teacher. But in all cases, our implementations have been slightly different. So we've either worked with a private data firm to collect the data or with the extension of the government who would carry out the survey for us or another division of the Department of Education who would also carry out the remote surveys. In the cases of Sierra Leone and Niger, where we did an in-person data collection that was carried out as part of the dashboard, we used a private data firm to collect that data. It sounds like an incredible task to do this multilingual approach, highly global, but also multi-stakeholders. Multi what is the role of the governments in all this operation? So typically, we would start by securing interest from the World Bank country teams, and then we would connect with the relevant authorities or the government in each country to ensure that we had institutional support and buy-in for the survey. Great. Marilyn, what do you think about this process? Yeah, thanks. Um, now, I was just wanting to come in to say that I, one of the key points here is really that there is interest from the government in like they have questions, right, that they want to answer related to what's happening on the edtech space in their system. Like Emma was saying, right, so securing that interest or understanding that interest is really key so that we can make the data that's eventually collected the most useful possible uh, for them. All right. So that's super important. It's something that, that the World Bank comes and, and is a result of a conversation with the government, which I, at the end of the day, if I'm understanding well, the one yeah. which is going to be highly benefited from all, all this exercise. Yeah, exactly. Just maybe a, as an example, right? Our work in Ho Chi Minh City was really embedded in the work of the Department of Education that they were doing in terms of policy. So they were in the process of revising the policy on, on EdTech and Dergeon EdTech. And that's kind of where this work came in so that this data 
provide inputs to their reflection and allow them to better prioritize what they will be focused on in the years to come. That's great. Let me, let me ask a question to Marjorie, who has a lot of experience in impact evaluations and monitoring. So it sounds like you have this dual approach, remote and in-person. I assume the remote has to do with the pandemic. How do you secure the reliability of the data and all this exercise? What is the approach to be sure that the instrument is collecting the, the data spec with the quality that is needed for these kind of studies? Great questions. So ensuring the quality uh, of the data is quite important for the team. One of the aspects where we spend the most time with our local partners, a few things that we do to ensure the quality. One of them is to select the best possible local partner in the country that we're, where we're conducting data collection. And we do this through a competitive process. What we are looking for is a company that have experience in two main aspects. One is collecting data in the field of education, meaning having experience dealing with uh, principals and collecting information from teachers and also with the modality of data collection, in this case, remote versus in-person. And this is key because we know that procedures and engagement will be different for different modalities. Training of personnel will be different. Qualification of the people that will conduct the, the field work will be different. The second aspect that we pay a lot of attention to improve the quality of the data collection is the piloting. We spend a lot of time with our local partners and we pilot several things. So we're trying to pilot the process basically to determine when it's a good time to reach the principals, how long in advance, uh, whether it's going to be possible to send the survey in advance through email or different modality. So we're trying to understand the best way to reach and the timing to reach the principal and the teachers. Also, through the pilot, we want to pilot, of course, the data collectors or the numerators. And so we usually start with a larger roster of numerators and through the piloting and by checking how they perform the survey, we end up selecting the best enumerators. And there is a lot about the contextualization of the survey. So the survey, the entry service in English, and we translate it to the local language. And through that process, we, we also bet the language that we are using to make sure they are cultural sensitive or contextualized. But at the same time, trying to ensure that the survey is still comparable across country. And through phone survey, we also want to make sure that the flow, the questions flow well with the select enumerators, with the contextualized survey, that the questionnaire is conducted in a reasonable time, and that the questions are understood by the by principals and teachers. So that's very important. We incorporate in each of the countries where we conduct the data collection, we incorporate the lessons learned and try to, to improve the process in the main data collection. For instance, in Nepal, we conduct a phone survey. And we work a lot with the data collection firm to understand what's the best process to incorporate principals and teachers and therefore to collect the most accurate information. For instance, we try sending the survey in advance and asking them to consult it with the teachers before the actual phone survey. We also ask them whether it would be suitable and feasible, given the schedule of the teachers, to bring them to the phone survey to answer the question. So we try different mechanisms to, to, again, make sure that the, the data is the most accurate possible and that also the principals and teachers feel comfortable. So we have to be very accommodating of their schedules and their availability. Although after COVID, there are more information and guidelines on conducting remote data collection, we acknowledge that it's difficult sometimes for, with font data collection to observe the non-verbal cues, meaning 
to understand whether the principal or the teachers are comfortable or tired during the data collection. And also, phone service, it says to be subject to additional inaccuracy because of the impossibility to verify the information. So moving forward, the ETRI team would like to explore how best to compare the two data modalities, meaning phone-based service and in-person data collection. And we, we will do this exercise in a couple of countries, and we are still kind of thinking about or refining the methodology to do this best and learn the most of this exercise. Another thing that we are planning to do to, to improve the quality of the phone-based survey is using, for instance, things like pictures or, or things that are easily shared through WhatsApp about information that are difficult to collect with accuracy through a survey. For instance, the internet capacity of the school. Sometimes teachers don't know or principals don't know exactly what is the characteristic of the internet that they have in place. Another aspect that we are exploring moving forward to improve the quality is to reduce the number of questions for the surveys. We know from all these guidelines and experience doing remote data collection during COVID that the longer the survey, the lower the reliability and the quality. So after this pilot, we're examining the questions and looking to see whether we can eliminate it of this questionnaire and therefore reduce the number of questions and hopefully improve the quality and the flow of the whole data. And another aspect that we will be exploring and we keep exploring in each of these countries, how to introduce incentives, non-monetary incentives, before the data collection to encourage honest response from principals and teachers and therefore collect a better quality of data. That's fantastic. Wow. I, I would love to learn about that. Understanding that the, the instrument is in an early state, but you have information from several countries. Two takeaways that I've seen after revising the reports. The first one, which I think is very helpful in the context of the post-pandemic, is that many of the significant investment on education and technology are not necessarily aligned with a national strategy where the vision, the participation of the different stakeholders the alignment with the infrastructure, the, the financing and the impact evaluation are all in the same package. So it sounds like kind of these this kind of instruments are very helpful to, to reflect on what exists and to put all of them in a coherent vision to provide, a, for instance, a national ethics strategy or a national ethics plan that can allow to align all the players. And the second component, which I, I have read in many of your reports, is what the World Bank calls the enabling conditions are critical factors. In other words, it cannot be assumed that everybody will have access to electricity, connectivity, devices, and digital skills to make the benefit of these resources, right? So there are a number of basic baseline that needs to be addressed by countries, particularly with the most vulnerable communities in the most marginalized sectors. So I think these are two very important takeaways out of these countries. Yeah, so I think from my perspective, I would come in on something that's uh, methodological in how we uh, analyze the data, but also present the data. So given that not everybody is a data geek, the challenge is often to make sure that you present the result in a way that's actionable and that answers the question that initially the government counterpart would really have highlighted, right? Like I, we were saying at the beginning, it's important to identify what they're looking for and how we can present it in a way that's helpful. So we've tried traffic light color system, which highlights in red, yellow, or green what's working not so well. So in red, 
what could be improved a little in yellow and, and what's pretty well aligned with that best practices in green. But often, or in some cases, this is not disaggregated enough or granular enough to, to really find what are the entry points. So I don't really have the answer because it's more of a lesson that we need to, to dig into how to do this better. This is super interesting because it, what it sounds is you don't feel, I mean, let me know if I interpret you well. It's not enough to publish a report with graph. You want to be sure that this information is leading to action. So the best way you present this information in a more user-friendly manner to translate that into functions is something that seems to be interesting for the team. Exactly. And then the other aspect of it is how to link it to all the very useful information that exists out there. Right. So the data that we're collecting is looking at how the system is doing, but then it's really interesting to see how we can use that to bring in best practices or example or uh, policies that are put in place in other contexts that are similar and facing similar challenges and how that can help them. We find some countries that they have some higher level policies about how ICT should be used in schools or very high level policies. But when we start digging through the survey in terms of how this is, these policies are reflected in the classroom, we see that there is not enough guidance or there is not enough landing of this policy at the school level, meaning some teachers or principals know that there is something on ICT at the education level, but they don't necessarily know how to use or how to implement specific ICT elements in the, in the classroom. Let me give you an example about devices, for instance. So we found some countries where there is, there's been an effort to distribute devices into schools. But when we ask about how those devices are used, whether they have any specific guidance on how to use or how they monitor the use of devices efficiently, we see a lack or a gap there. So, and that's very difficult because that implies really thinking hard what part of the curriculum devices can be used, what kind of software students can use for specific courses. So that requires a very granular planning at the school level, which is needed in order for technology to be used at the school, but also used efficiently. This is great because we hear a lot enthusiasm for technology to support learning here and there and now with GPT and all these new techs. But what you're saying is very, very instrumental and we don't hear that everywhere, which is, all right, after technology is there, what are the guidance that need to be provided? What is the help or what are the instructions? What is the framework? So the how-to, which I'm sure many, many teachers who are listening to us have a lot of interest to, to understand better. Thank you for that. Emma, what is your, your big lesson out of this global exercise? One of the interesting takeaways that came out for me was that there is a tendency for people to compare countries or want to rank them based on where they fell with the results. And that was something we specifically wanted to distance ourselves from because Etri was designed as a light touch tool and not as a comprehensive diagnostic. So I think rather than present these results in a dashboard, for example, where you compare one country to another, what we wanted to do was to present the results of a country within the context of where they are in terms of their development with respect to infrastructure and their policies. It is quite an in-depth output that we present each country. We do have numbers, obviously, underlying our metrics on Etri, but the idea wasn't you scored X out of Y. The idea was, you know, these things need attention. These things are okay. These things need more improvement. 
those conversations are quite nuanced because we have this report, we discuss it in the context of what the country wants. So in the case of Ho Chi Minh City, for example, they had a digital strategy and they really took those results on board and pulled out the parts that were most relevant to them and what they needed. And they're using that to inform their next steps in government. So to compare one country with another would maybe require understanding more in depth where each country sits in terms of their development, what infrastructure they have, where they are in terms of maturity model. And maybe applying that would be more appropriate way to talk about the results of one country in relation to another. That's great. We could say that we could see countries we have maybe with an earlier stage of development, which can benefit from other good practices borrowed from other countries. So I think there were maybe some countries that scored predominantly in sort of red or yellow categories. And in those particular countries, we want to consider their best practices when, ad when advising on the results. That sounds good. Thank you. Marjorie, I, I understand you, you were part of the team that was providing technical advice to uh, Nepal during the whole data collection. Any takeaway from the whole experience? Perhaps let me talk about the teacher component, which is one of the pillars of the ETRI. So we, we think it's important that technology should complement the role of the teacher, not supplement. And we see in Nepal, for instance, some evidence that there is some use of technology in some in certain contexts, but still we don't think the technology is there to empower teachers because there's not all the elements that are needed for this to happen. For instance, we know that we need to have a, a skill framework for this. So if the teachers are going to use the technology in the classroom, teachers need to know what are the skills that they are expected to, to have to use the technology and what kind of technology. So these skills are typically described in a, what we call an ICT competency framework that clearly describes how digital technology can be used. And then that ICT framework has to be translated in terms of training. So if we have a high-level document that is not translated into specific training, hands-on training, where teachers have the capacity to fully understand what this framework means, it's a lost opportunity for teachers to, to be able to to really have a good take-up of these policies. And once they start implementing, it will be very important also to establish some way of evaluating and monitoring. And this is something, for instance, that we don't see in Nepal, but we don't see in many countries. So there maybe we have frameworks, but there is no link to the training. And if there is training, there is no mechanism to monitor whether teachers are actually using what they learn in the training, whether there is any reinforcing mechanism where teachers are coached through different modalities and whether they receive any feedback of how the technology is being used. Super. Uh, Emma, you were supporting the data collection in the case of Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Anything that, that you think is worth to be highlighted there? One of the interesting takeaways that we found from the analysis process was that in the case of Ho Chi Minh City, we, we found something we didn't expect, which is that the, the de facto policies, so the understanding of the policies as they are on the ground, outperformed the de jure policy. So that is the actual regulations that are part of the school framework. And this isn't something that we would expect necessarily because in general, you would expect the education system to maybe lag behind in practice what is implemented at the policy level. And we found this quite interesting finding in the case of Ho Chi Minh City. This is that you are mentioning is super interesting because there might be something happening within the classroom that can be of interest potentially for, for other regions or countries, yeah? Certainly, yes. And that's something I think we wanted to understand in more detail. All right, right. So I, now I'm understanding why this instrument can be not only useful to 
see performance or maturity or advance, but also to share good practices that can benefit other participating countries. That's great. Thank you. Marie-Hélène, you're being quite involved in this whole process. Thank you, Chris. So I think we can talk a little bit about how it went in Dominican Republic. So that was a very interesting process. So first of all, when we started, there was a, a big, big, big interest. There was a lot of momentum. They were talking about edtech. They were thinking about a new edtech strategy. There was a lot of excitement in embarking in that exercise. So that was very useful. And the other thing that was very interesting is that they have a strong data collection agency or evaluation and research agency in education. And they took the lead in actually collecting the data. So they have a call center and they did all the work themselves, which is really great uh, to increase buy-in. We haven't really yet had a chance to, to do a lot of work on disseminating the information. But I think this commitment and the big role they played in actually collecting the data is really going to be super helpful moving forward. That, that's great. And now that we have shared all these experiences and we will encourage people to have a look at the resources that we will provide in the description. For full disclosure, I have to say that I also collaborate very close with this team and it's a fantastic team. And I think there's so much to learn of this, of this exercise. Because of all the reasons that you have already shared, this is not only an instrument assessment and goodbye, it's guidance, connection between the policy and the implementation, it's concrete advice, it's good practices. And I guess the most relevant underlying message that is behind is it's not only about procuring and you know, deploying technology or connectivity or platforms or contents, is a combination, an orchestration of different components that have to happen at the ecosystem level where the capacities of the teachers, the capacity of the policymakers, high quality monitoring tools is going to be of great, of great relevance because I believe otherwise we will be only tackling a specific dimensions and not the whole spectrum in a world and an environment where technologies are completely cross-cutting beyond the context. So. I, I guess we have a lot, a lot to learn from this exercise. We will be sharing resources, as I said, and all the materials since this, as far as I understand, this instrument will be applied and deployed in more countries. This is just the closing of the piloting that was supported by Imaginable Futures. And we look forward to see this instrument expanded in other places to expand the sort of conversations that we had today. Uh, if you want to stay in contact with us, please reach out to us. Just before concluding, I want to express my gratitude to Marjorie, Marielaine, and Emma. Thank you so much for your time. I think this is a fascinating project. We look forward to keep sharing our experience. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. We look forward to the future iterations of Edtree.